understanding right-wing extremism, China's talent recruitment programs, and COVID-19 vaccine disinformation. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss China's global talent recruitment programs. These stations are are really a global phenomenon. And uh, while the report identifies 600 of them, that's probably far from being all of them. And it might not even be the majority of stations. And COVID-19 vaccine disinformation. Um, If it's a really detailed lie, people are kind of more likely to believe it because they're like, well, who who would bother to make up something with this much detail in it? But first, Leanne Close speaks to Julia Ebner, resident research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in London and author of Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists. They talk about right-wing extremism and Julia's experiences going undercover and engaging with extremist groups and individuals. Julia, thank you so much for joining me on this Aspie podcast. Uh, You spent the past few years really immersed in researching extremist networks. Uh, You investigated why people join them, what options there might be for preventing radicalisation. Your initial research has actually focused on Islamic extremism. So why did you start looking at right-wing extremism in so much detail? Yeah, well, I actually started when ISIS was at the height of its power to really look into jihadist networks and especially into ISIS recruiting strategies. And what I found was that immediately after the jihadist attacks that we saw across the world staged by ISIS-inspired attackers, we had really a strong resurgence of the far right and they tried to exploit the situation and really target their anti-Muslim hatred uh, towards the anti-Muslim communities and, and not just towards the jihadists. And that was something where I became more and more interested in, in how they managed to gain traction among the wider population. And then, of course, also in the UK, we had the stabbing, um, the lethal stabbing of our Labour MP, Joe Cox, and um, that was by a neo-Nazi. So that really prompted me to look into that side of the extremist spectrum because I saw how how dangerous they can be as well. And in your new book, uh, which is called Going Dark, The Secret Lives of Extremists, which I can highly recommend, you explain how you created different um, online avatars or personas where you infiltrated these various groups. And you also actually met in quite brave way with um, several of these key spokespeople or their leaders in person. So how did you create the avatars and also remember those sorts of details that you need to engage with those different groups online or in person? I I started off by doing a lot of research into how these groups recruit new members, but also what kind of language they use, what kind of insider references they make. They have their own, their whole own vocabulary, their whole own online world, where it's necessary to understand their little hints and their little, um, yeah, their their world basically in order to be able to um, to penetrate that. And so I, I did a lot of um, research into that also in the previous years. And um, of course, that didn't just concern far-right networks, but also conspiracy theorist networks like QAnon or um, the misogynist uh, communities, jihadist networks. And then I, I reached out in different ways because all of these groups have very different uh, strategies of, of recruiting new members. So I reached out to them initially online, and then in some of the cases, I also was invited to offline meetings or events. So what was probably some of the most confronting or challenging groups or individuals that you dealt with, um, both online and in the real world? 
I would say in the real world, it was probably a neo-Nazi festival that I went to on the border of Germany and Poland. And the problem here was that I, I knew that a lot of these members had a criminal past and there were actually police forces control, like controlling the outside of the, the festival territory, but there wasn't much police presence in there. So I knew that if my cover was blown inside, there might be um, a fight or I might be um, targeted by some of them physically. So that was uh, quite a scary moment and where I thought, okay, I, I, I knew what I was getting myself into, but I had moments where I thought, did I go too far maybe? Yeah. Online space, I have to say that overall, I was almost more concerned by um, the online presence of, of a lot of these groups and also the, the online threats, death threats, sexual threats. I've in the past received lots of threats from extremist um, groups and extremist users. And I was really quite scared of one of the groups that had a very strongly um, almost military-like shaped online mobilization tactic. They were a neo-Nazi um, kind of trolling army and they had targeted me in the past. So I knew that as soon as they would find out that, um, that I was undercover with them, I might become a bigger target for them. And they also have doxxed, for example, uh, people in the past, their political enemies, basically. So from journalists to researchers to uh, politicians to activists, and of course, if you get docs, so if your private address or phone numbers are leaked, um, then there's also a real threat of these people showing up your, at your home or uh, at your family's place. And as you say, you um, started researching it because of the murder of Joe Cox. So it, it is a really huge threat and a real emerging threat for people like yourselves and others who are involved in counterterrorism investigations or operations. I'm just also really interested in... Um, the work that you did, the study, how you compare how um, right-wing extremists and Islamic extremists, for example, how they undertake their recruitment, socialisation. Did you find that they were quite similar or is there a lot of differences in those aspects? No, what was really quite interesting was that their recruitment strategies are very much aligned. They're very similar, actually. In both cases, they tap into very similar grievances and fears of um, of their target audiences. So they would really use individual um, experiences and tailor them to the almost like uh, put the narratives on top of them and explain why people, um, why people experience certain injustices um, with a bigger conspiracy theory, for example, or with a bigger ideology that puts a clear, uh, that, that kind of comes up with a clear enemy group to target. And also what was really prominent in both groups was that uh, gamification was used. So they really tried to gamify uh, their recruitment to make um, almost video game-like propaganda in order to lure in young members. And then lastly, I'd say that one of the parallels is also that the socialization process is, mu is much more important than the ideological indoctrination in most of those groups. So once you're recruited, um, they try to make you feel as if you're a part of an exclusive subculture. They create, as I said earlier, their own language, their own insider um, jokes and references, and you feel like you're becoming part of something. And only the ideological kind of indoctrination is only a side process of that. And I think there's a lot of um, research underway now in terms of how we can try to engage um, and turn people away from that sort of that ideology or or 
coming together of the various groups to promote violence or even in Australia we're having similar experiences to Europe and the UK, you know, the 5G conspiracy theorists or um, now COVID conspiracy theorists. What are some of the strategies you think could be undertaken to try to move those people away from the ideology? Yeah, it's really it's been really concerning to watch um, things play out in the online world, especially now since coronavirus um, came up as an issue that uh, extremist groups have been trying to tailor their propaganda to and the narratives. And it's really, it was um, quite visible that a lot of these extremist uh, movements and conspiracy theory groups gained a lot of followers in recent months. I think it's really necessary for, for us to adopt some of the de-radicalization programs that work really well in offline contexts for the online world. So I haven't really seen much or enough of um, intervention programs that really get into those echo chambers, into those fringe messaging boards and online platforms and uh, carry out de-radicalization and intervention programs there. And I think we can really learn some of the lessons from from the offline work, from great offline work that has been done and apply that to these um, fringe spaces where a lot of the authorities sometimes don't even know they exist or didn't know until, for example, the Christchurch shooting happened. Uh, and now they're looking into that and are becoming slowly better at understanding them. But there's not enough, um, there, there are not enough policies and programs that target those spaces yet. And we're seeing some of that evidenced in the US at the moment where people are openly wearing QAnon shirts or other things. And, and even some of the politicians are espousing some of their, their rhetoric. Um, so in terms of the online environment there, we, in your book, you talk about um, various conspiracy theories and hashtag activism. And definitely you highlight that conspiracy theories are much more often born in times of um, societal crisis, which we're obviously experiencing in 2020. Um, so what advice would you give to companies like the more open ones, Facebook, Twitter, Google, that um, host or in many ways encourage, and they certainly don't discourage, the use of their services to promote violent extremism? So I think one of the biggest mistakes we saw from the past was that um, that they used inconsistent approaches, both within their own company policies, but also there was no coordinated strategy among the big the tech giants. Um, and I think that led to a situation where a lot of these groups could actually prepare for takedowns for over a year. For example, the a white nationalist group, Generation Identity, which I also joined as part of, of my undercover research, and they inspired Brenton Tarrant, the, the Christchurch perpetrator. Um, they even they had one year from the point where the first social media company took down their account to the point where um, now the last company, YouTube, took down their their accounts, and they prepared um, very wisely for how to how to make their followers change to different alternative platforms. So they had enough time to really um, still use the bigger platforms to lure those members into the smaller ones. And that's one of the big problems. So I, I really think there needs to be um, a cooperation between uh, the different platforms on when they do takedowns. And there needs to be a consistent strategy across this board. And maybe policy um, makers need to shape that, that strategy. That's such good advice. And I know that in um, your final chapter in the book, you certainly outlined some key policy ideas and strategies for um, not just governments or not just these big um, online social media companies, but um, other people generally to try to counter that growing extremist rhetoric. Some of the ones that I thought were really um, useful and, and different were arts against anger, um, definitely galvanising the middle. And as you say there, um, Julia, it's about the language and the symbols that we use more generally to try to counter that. Um, certainly, 
education against extremism is another couple of um, another really key issue. Yeah, are there other areas that your research is leading to? Well, I'd say especially in the education um, sector, I think there's a lot of uh, potential for for raising awareness, not just about, um, for example, digital literacy, which is something that has already been incorporated in a lot of the curricula that I looked at in Europe and and also, I believe, also in, in other countries, in the US and in Australia in some schools, but issues related more to how does the internet really change our identities? How does it change us as individuals, as groups? What kind of group processes can it um, give rise to? And those things haven't really been addressed um, in school, in the school or in an education context yet. And I think there's a lot of potential for um, maybe even speaking about those issues in psychology or philosophy and in in more of a wider context of what is this really doing to us so that people are prepared for for the potential changes that we can see in, in also in the coming years and how extremist groups might exploit those changes. I think there's a real call and real need now for more ethics training, more citizenry, citizenship training and, and civics. And we've probably gone away from that a little bit and clearly there's a need for us to regroup, as you say, on those issues. Uh, and I think that certainly um, Australia's experience and probably what you're seeing in, in Europe more broadly, uh, people are now trying to formulate those ideas um, and working together collaboratively with academia, government, other community groups. So I hope that there is a good change and a positivity coming out of all of these issues for the future. And I certainly do believe that um, books like yours, Going Dark, uh, Secret Social Lives of Extremists, goes a long way to helping to put some light and transparency on the key issues and turn it from hatred to a voice of hope. So thank you so much for joining us um, on the podcast. Good luck into the future with your research and, and I thank hope the, the book goes really well for you. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Goodbye. Next, Danielle Cave speaks to Alex Josky about his new report, Hunting the Phoenix which details the global scale and reach of China's talent recruitment programs in its efforts to gain technology and talent from abroad. Hi, my name is Danielle Cave and I'm the Deputy Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPE and I'm here with Alex Josky, who's one of our analysts to talk about a new project uh, that we launched last week. Alex has spent a huge chunk of this year and parts of last year working on this new project and it's called Hunting the Phoenix, the Chinese Communist Party's global search for technology and talent. And like all of Alex's projects, he sunk our legal budget, uh, they, they go over word count, there's an, an enormous amount of footnoting and of course they always attract a lot of attention. And some of the underpinning databases uh, that uh, Alex has used as evidence in this project he's been working on for probably over a year. So Alex, can I ask you, can you talk us through this new project and what you found? Thanks, Danielle. The project is really trying to be a more detailed and introductory study into China's talent recruitment efforts that doesn't just look at the Thousand Talents Plan, but looks at the whole range of talent recruitment activity that the Chinese government's involved in. And, and particularly one of the main findings of this report is that the Chinese government set up these talent recruitment stations around the world, uh, relationships where the Chinese government is paying overseas groups to carry out talent recruitment work on its behalf. And it really shows the, the global extent of these activities. It's a problem that's been widely recognized in the US, but I think this report is showing how 
many other countries should be triggering similar responses. So can you explain to our listeners, I mean, you talk about on page one how the mechanisms of the CCP's talent recruitment are poorly understood. Um, Why is that? I think there's quite a long-running tendency to focus on individuals, especially in the context of Chinese intelligence or espionage work. Back around 20 or 30 years ago, people were talking about this theory of the thousand grains of sand and, and sand and talking about how China would send overseas these waves of uh, amateur or even non-professional collectors to gather up technology and information from around the world. But I think since then, that theory has basically been refuted. And I think that means that we should focus a lot on the institutions and understand the structures and the methods of these activities and emphasize that more, I think, than the individuals. Because, you know, at its core, this is a program set up by the Chinese Communist Party. It's run by the Chinese Communist Party. And that's that should be our focus, uh, understanding how it recruits people and uh, sort of what those incentives are, the, the ecosystem of this recruitment work, because that's how you're going to stop it. So I want us to get to the talent recruitment stations because I think that's something that for a lot of people are, you know, is, is, it's a particularly interesting finding of your report and it's quite hard to visualise what these stations are. But before we get there, can you talk us through the spectrum of what you've sort of called the CCP's technology transfer efforts? Because there's obviously the very overt, very legal side of things, uh, which is happening very openly and transparently and which, you know, all universities around the world are involved in. But then there's also the sort of more grey zone and and covert um, side of things. And you talk about this in your report on about page five from memory. It's a really important part of... um and a challenging part of China's tech transfer efforts that it doesn't, you know, conveniently all fall into the category of being overt or, or covert. It it crosses the spectrum, and it means that you can't just say uh, participating in a talent recruitment program is illegal, because a lot of it seems to be uh, transparent and perfectly acceptable. Where people are joining the Thousand Talents Plan, for example. Uh, moving to China, taking up a job in China, and they haven't taken technology with them. They haven't taken up a conflict of interest. But at the same time, there does seem to be quite a high level of misconduct associated with these programs. There are dozens of cases coming out of the US that are showing grant fraud, undisclosed conflicts of interest, uh, and even in some cases, theft and intelligence recruitment wrapped up as part of China's talent recruitment programs. So let's talk about the um, talent recruitment stations. And I will encourage people, jump onto our website, find Alex's report. And if you go through the online version of the report, you'll see a map which you can click on. You jump across to that map and you'll see that we've geolocated these stations, not down to the exact street, but to the city level. So you can sort of see the spread of these stations across Australia and New Zealand, India, the US, etc. Uh, and it's it's really interesting to see uh, where um, there are sort of a lot of these stations versus I think in India from memory there was only a couple and, and they were mostly in Mumbai, for example. So can you talk us through the geographic spread and explain to us what are these stations, who's running these stations, uh, and what's the overlap here with the United Front system? Each station is essentially uh, a contract 
or an agreement between a part of the Chinese government and an overseas organization where the overseas organization is being is is agreeing or being paid to recruit scientists from overseas and also run things like exchange programs uh, host delegations from China and collect uh, data and build databases on overseas scientists who might be worth recruiting these stations are a really a global phenomenon and uh, while the report identifies 600 of them that's probably far from being all of them and it might not even be the majority of stations that have been set up 146 of them were in the United States there are also really high levels of them in in Germany uh, across the five eyes Australia UK Canada and in Japan and France all of those countries had over 40 talent recruitment stations which really points to how um the response that's been triggered in the US should should be triggered in in a lot of those other countries so do you think there's two parts i want to get to now one is and i might leave this till the end is how you think governments and policymakers around the world and universities should respond but before i get to that you know as you're reading your paper i kept just thinking you know are universities and industry missing out on commercialization opportunities here because of some of this recruitment activity going on and obviously I'm not talking the overt side I'm talking the the covert and illegal side here I mean what's the picture in Australia do you think we're missing out on commercialization Absolutely um commercial activity activity is a really important part of China's talent recruitment efforts they're not just bringing people uh to China and and setting them up with labs and opportunities there they're setting up them up with venture capital funding and commercial opportunities and helping them build businesses that are worth hundreds of millions or in some cases billions of dollars so there was a case i wrote about uh last year where a scientist who used to work at the university of queensland joined the thousand talents plan while he was still a professor in australia and also set up a company in china that specialized in artificial intelligence and facial recognition technology uh, he left uq but was still running that company and it's now worth over 100 million dollars he claims and it's selling facial recognition technology to chinese authorities in xinjiang where the government is using similar technologies for uh, the monitoring of ethnic uigur muslims and i think that that really points to the potential uh, for a lot of australian intellectual property that's funded by the australian government or by australian universities to actually get commercialized in china So essentially the benefits of all of that investment are just going to China and to Chinese companies if a lot of this talent recruitment activity isn't better monitored and um and better controlled. I also forgot earlier to answer the question about United Front Networks. Talent recruitment stations are a really great illustration of how the United Front system, which is a part of the Chinese government that works to make sure that groups outside the party are aligned with the party's goals. how that systems involved in tech transfer and talent recruitment work because a lot of the groups running these stations are united front groups we normally associate them with political influence work but there's a clear overlap in some cases quite directly where you see politicians from uh from Canada for example or from the UK turning up at ceremonies for the establishment of talent recruitment stations so there's that overlap potentially between political influence and um talent recruitment work I'm also going to double back just like what you did before we get to the end. 
There seems to be, and, and there's an enormous media focus at the moment on the Thousand Talents plan that's been reporting in the Australian. You can see reporting um, overseas in Canada and other places as well. But your research actually finds that the Thousand Talents plan is just one of many sort of recruitment programs. Could you just quickly touch on um, how some of the provinces are active in this space? And then we'll jump to policy recommendations. The Thousand Talents Plan is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Chinese government talent recruitment activity. Aside from the Thousand Talents Plan, uh, there have probably been at least 200 programs set up by the Chinese government. A lot of those are at the national level, so Chinese national agencies setting up and running them. But the majority of them, and same with talent recruitment stations, are actually set up by provinces or even municipalities, cities. So this, this means that if you're just looking at the Thousand Talents Plan, you're missing a lot of the activity, uh, in fact, most of the activity. So the Thousand Talents Plan has recruited at least 7,000 people from overseas, but China's talent recruitment efforts as a whole have probably recruited well over 60,000 scientists. So noting that this is a really complicated issue for governments and perhaps even more complicated for universities, including universities in Australia, how do you think they should respond? As you say, it's, it's a really tricky issue. And I think um, it's going to firstly require a much greater investment in the kinds of skills and capabilities needed to, to study and investigate these activities. Because a lot of people are concerned uh, in universities and in governments about some of these risks associated with Chinese government talent recruitment programs. But there's very little work being done uh, to identify participants, to uh, study the programs themselves and study those associated risks. Uh, but once that analytical base is built up, you know, the risks are quite clear and we can see that from these US uh, indictments about grant fraud and uh, economic espionage. So it, it calls for much stronger oversight by grant agencies to make sure that people are disclosing uh, foreign uh, connections and are disclosing the fact that they're in a talent recruitment program and also on the part of universities to make sure that academics and staff uh, are aware of their disclosure requirements, know that they actually need to tell the university if they're commercialising research and be a, a lot clearer on who owns that intellectual property. And the government can play a really important role in this space by informing funding agencies, working with funding agencies, informing universities holding briefings, and potentially alerting universities to concerning cases where they think uh, you know, a participant in a talent recruitment program might warrant further scrutiny. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. Thank you. I'd encourage everyone to take a look at Alex's report. It's on the homepage of our website and it's called Hunting the Phoenix. Finally, Elise Thomas and research intern Albert Sang discussed their analysis of recent pro-Russian vaccine disinformation. Uh, so Albert, so we recently put out the latest report in our COVID-19 disinformation reporting line um, and we looked at a, a piece of disinformation which came out of a pro-Russian separatist militia in eastern Ukraine which was related to a fictional vaccine trial which kills allegedly uh, Ukrainian soldiers uh, in the city of Kharkiv which is a Ukrainian government controlled city and sort of the interesting elements about this is firstly that it never happened but secondly, that it had some pretty significant political undertones in terms of uh, the vaccine being connected 
to American scientists and later to a specific American company called Moderna um, and their mRNA vaccine. And so what I thought was really interesting about that particular report was both the timeline in in the sense of um, the way we were able to step out how it spread from the, the initial fringe propaganda website to social media via uh, Russian and English language fringe media sites and also also the way in which the spread was so multilingual. Um, so I know you had a, a bit of a look at the different languages in which that misinformation spread. Um, what did you say? Oh, uh, that's right. I guess I focused more on the sort of quantitative aspect of the sort of spread of this narrative. And I found that it was spread across Facebook and Twitter as well. But definitely most of the activity sort of started on Facebook at least and sort of spread into Twitter. And you're absolutely right. Like the spread was multilingual in nature. It hit mainly sort of started off in Russian and Bulgarian sort of Facebook groups. Which Why makes, Bulgarian, do you think? Um, that seemed like a weird one to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly certain. I think then maybe it's due to sort of the politics of the relationship between sort of Bulgarians and the Russians. I know that the Russians have a, like a presence in Bulgaria. I know the Zero Hedge uh, website is mm. registered in Bulgaria as well. But apart from that, I'm not exactly certain as well. After sort of, I guess, initially spreading in sort of those Baltic states, um, there was an Italian article which picked up this activity. And I think you found a really interesting post that had been heavily scrubbed by Facebook. It was like a weird screenshot of the auto-translation of this Italian article. Is that right? Yeah. So what happened is that we initially came across came across this disinformation because I spotted it at the time um, on, on Facebook. Um, so I think July 26th, I noticed that this, you know, strange post was kind of going viral. And just sort of didn't think too much about it at the time. And I'm really kicking myself now because I should have archived that post. Um, but sort of a, a few a few weeks later, we were looking for a, a new topic for the next COVID-19 disinformation report. And I remembered this particular piece of disinformation because it was an absolute corker. Um, because it's, it's, it's unusual to have disinformation that is absolutely an outright lie um, but there was there's you know no factual basis to this whatsoever it's been fact-checked multiple times and yet it has been extraordinarily successful and part of that extraordinary success is linked to this viral facebook post that i saw on july 26th but which had been circulating for a few days probably starting around july 24th and that one was quite confusing because it consisted of a screenshot of a media article about this vaccine-related disinformation. And when I went back uh, to try and find that post, firstly, it was really difficult to find because Facebook had uh, scrubbed that post unusually well. So they deleted a lot of the like the viral spread of that, that disinformation, but they deleted that specific post like really unusually well. Um, and so I was ma- able to find it eventually in the Google cache of a QAnon Philippines group <laughs> and it was um and so I was able to, to like to find it there um and then there was a struggle to find the source of this screenshotted article so I, I just couldn't find I couldn't find where it was from I couldn't find that website I couldn't find anything and I eventually realized that it was a screenshot of an auto translate of an Italian conspiracy site um <laughs> so that took a while um stepping back but that does show like as you were saying the multilingual spread so it sort of jumped from russian language media with a few like little tendrils of fringe um english language content into italian media got screenshotted and put into this this strange post um which is quite suspicious there's not enough data left for us to be able to make any determination about whether it was inauthentic or not but it's certainly weird and from there it jumped into the english language media and really went viral around about the 24th which is when it started to get um, significant pickup. And I think one of the things that you found, Albert, is that that, that pickup, which, which suggests that the pickup started on Facebook 
potentially with this strange post is mm-hmm. that the pickup in Facebook happened before the pickup on Twitter? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Um, yeah, the data definitely sort of suggests that as well and a lot of the English language activity sort of happened between that 24th when that Italian post was uh, published to about the 29th, I think. Mm. And from there, um, either the platforms, both Facebook and Twitter, like algorithms started kicking in and started creating a bit of friction, for spreading of the friction of spreading the sort of viral narrative, really. Yeah, and it, it really, like, yeah. it's, it's worth, I think, um, having a look at the graph in the report because it really craters. Mm. Like, the 29th, it just drops off a cliff, yep. which I think shows, um, as you said, like, the, the impact that the platforms can have when they make that effort. Mm. Um, so, I think, I guess the interesting thing is it was allowed to bubble on for about five days between the 24th and the 29th, and then the platforms kicked in um, and started, started knocking it down. But I guess the, the interesting thing we also saw was that as the platform started cracking down on some of those links, particularly there was a, a, a English language conspiracy site called Stalker Zone, which is the one that really went viral from the 24th to 29th. As they cracked down on that, we saw a secondary spike in their press release from the um, from the pro-Russian separatist militia in eastern Ukraine. Their, yep. their propaganda site started getting more traffic as that English language uh, article was blocked, which sort of suggests that people were responding to the blocking by shifting to a different source of the same disinformation. Mm, that's right. An interesting factor of this activity was that a lot of Facebook groups in South American countries mm. sort of picked up on that stalker zone article as well, as well as a prominent sort of Australian anti-vaccination network called the Australian Vaccination Risk Network also had the most engagement in terms of like English-speaking sort of Facebook group, group as well. Do you think sort of conspiracy groups, anti-vaxxers, um, are more becoming more of a central target for this type of inauthentic behaviours? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the um, the interesting thing about the success of, of this in- disinformation, because like this pro-Russian militia group puts out disinformation all the time, it doesn't <laughs> usually go viral like this, all puns intended. Um, uh, part of it is, is to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, but part of it is because this specific piece of disinformation fits a lot of narratives and fits a lot of agendas because it did have the anti-American element, it had the anti-Ukrainian government element, but it also had a very strong anti-vaxxer component, particularly because um, one of the things we saw actually, so the, the initial piece of disinformation just referenced um, American virologists. So there was a typo. They they didn't spell American right. Um, uh, American virologists. But within a day of being posted, there was a a Russian language media outlet which added a paragraph which linked the uh, trial to a specific American vaccine company called Moderna and their mRNA vaccine candidate. And the anti-vaxxer community in the past couple of weeks has been really hung up specifically on mRNA vaccines um, because they think it changes your DNA, which it doesn't. But by adding adding that twist of like targeting a specific uh, vaccine manufacturer and a specific type of vaccine, I think it broadened the appeal to a bunch of different communities. But the other thing it was it it added detail and in some ways disinformation can be more convincing when there's a lot of detail in it um, if it's a really detailed lie people are kind of more likely to believe it because they're like well who would who would bother to make up something with this much detail in it and so i think you know that that contributed in in multiple ways there mm. i think the other aspect was that this piece by the sort of pro-russian militia came out a day after the rush russia announced mm, their yeah. vaccine program as well and so there's sort of geopolitics at play here as well um, but something we also draw, sort of draw attention in our report is the fact that um, the sort of narratives and conspiracies around COVID-19 has shifted away from the origin of the virus, so mm-hmm. away from who did it, you know, why was it spread to now vaccine and sort of vaccine 
politics generally. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's a really interesting, um, really interesting evolution because mm. I guess you wonder to the to what extent it is an explicitly coordinated thing that you know hypothetically that you know someone linked to uh, the Russian state might have might have said go forth and spread this disinformation or like to what extent is kind of the organic alignment of interests um, as the conversation shifts so the disinformation shifts as well um, and it's like probably I guess the reality is probably somewhere between those two things right uh, so the report is available on the website it's called pro-russian vaccine politics drives new disinformation narratives thanks for chatting Elise there's always plenty of conspiracy theories out there for us to track for sure it was a fun one thank you Albert That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.